Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Hi, and welcome to The Nine Line Podcast, where VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System's resource for veterans, health, and services. I'm your host, John Archiquette, and with me, my co-host, Joshua Gray. How's it going, Josh? I'm doing great. I'm doing better than you are right now because you've got the droopy mask going on. <laughs> it's a new mask. It's a new so... mask, so it hasn't formed your face yet. Exactly. You know? That's got... the, the challenges of podcasting in 2020. You know, it's just like it's just like baseball. You know, right? you got you to gotta break in the new mitt. I got to break in the new mask here. <laughs> Perfect. That's yeah. topical, right? Yeah, very topical. Um, so we, you know, talked a little bit the first three episodes about uh, various aspects of, of the coronavirus. And uh, today, we've got a, a different aspect to talk about, uh, mental health. So joining us, we have two of our resident men- mental health experts here. Uh, we have Dr. Nicole Anders, and we have Mr. Tim Jobin. And they, uh, Tim is the chief of mental health here. And Dr. Anders, you are the, I know you are the uh, resident expert on the telemental health that, you were one of the ones that started it here, right? That's true. I was one of the first providers that did it in our mental health clinic. Um, I'm also the MST coordinator, which is military sexual trauma, as well as the EBP coordinator, which stands for evidence-based psychotherapy. And uh, they're they're two of our experts, and they're also uh, two of the the people who who have been champions of some of the programs we have going on here. Uh, they were recently just seen on Channel 13. Um, they did a, a series of great interviews with uh, one of our peer support specialists. And um, you're going to talk to us today a little bit about uh, some of the mental health challenges that we've seen uh, during the coronavirus. You mean to tell me they're famous? You didn't tell me how they had celebrities here, people who've been on TV. I'll sign your autograph after this. Oh, please. That'd be great. No problem. Are you going to charge me? Free. That's so great. That's so rare these days because so many celebrities just, you know, you go to a Comic-Con or something and they're charging you for their autograph. Or GoFest. Or GoFest. There you go. She only does free autographs for veterans, though. Oh, right? that's good. Good. <laughs> we'll look on Josh's about. Yeah, I know. We're lucky. We're very good. good. Free veterans. Free for veterans. So I know with coronavirus, you know, the first thing people think about obviously is the the physiological effects of the virus, um, you know, the prevention, treatment, things like that. But there's a lot of things that go into, uh, you know, some of the side effects of the isolation and the quarantine that we've seen. Um, you know, we've been under some you know effects of the pandemic for about four months now, and you know, I know myself personally, I've done I've done pretty well, but there are some some days where it's just like you know you do feel isolated and you do feel like um, you know some sense of, of looming hopelessness. You know, is that a common thing for people these days? Yeah, I would definitely say so. I mean, I think. We mentioned this in our interview on Channel 13, but it's almost more abnormal if someone wasn't feeling that way. I think it's it's not just veterans; it's not it's all of us. You know, we're, we're human beings, and as human beings, we're meant to be in connection, right? That's where we thrive in, in partnership, in communities, and that's what we're meant to be in, in in these groups. And so here we are having to be distanced, even within our own family structure sometimes. And I think that's really difficult um, in terms of depression and anxiety and the hopelessness you talk about because there's so many changing rules and changing data every day, which is the nature of it, but it's kind of like, where's the end in sight? Um, so it's really normal to feel that way. Do, do you feel that people who are veterans 
um, who a lot of those people who've had experiences going overseas, being away from family, being isolated. Uh, do you think they they deal with this any better than maybe the the population as a whole? Because I know I know going into this, like I had a, a bunch of friends, you know, talking on social media. They're like, "Oh no, we're going to be locked down. We're going to do this." And I'm like, <laughs> "I've been deployed. <laughs> I, I know what's coming. I get it." Right. <laughs> so, do you guys see that that uh, veterans may be handling those kinds of stressors a little bit more easily? I have a couple of thoughts on that. So I think, you know, being in the military, you are so used to being in a tribe and being surrounded by other people and really relying on those other people to get the mission done. For some of our veterans, I think it's even been harder for them because they're they're just, you know, relying on those social supports. So it's been interesting. I mean, we've seen kind of both sides of the scale, but... Um, you know, especially with our veterans that have that are that are in recovery from whatever they're dealing with, whether it's mental health, whether it's substance use, I mean, really the best way to recover is is through partnership with other people that are experiencing those same, um, you know, that are also recovering, and so the loss of that has been tough um, for for a lot of our veterans. So we've really worked to try and recreate it virtually for them, but um, I I don't think it's been easier. What about you? No, I definitely agree. I think sometimes just because you're used to something doesn't mean that you're handling it better. Right? Maybe you could have that idea, well, oh, I've done this before, but in fact, it's actually triggering how difficult it was the first time you did it. Um, so maybe there is some coping where you're, you're used to it, but like I said, used to it doesn't mean I'm coping better. Are you seeing any instances um, of people seeing increased PTSD-related issues because of coronavirus? In terms of being triggered more often? Yeah, yeah definitely. I think that you know, when people go through traumas, one of the biggest things... So I always like to say, and I teach my veterans this, that isolation is an antecedent and a consequence of trauma. So what does that mean? So actually, isolation perpetuates trauma. Like, it, it causes trauma. If you think about, um, you know, situations where there's, like, POWs or in just different, like, war tactics, you isolate somebody sure. to get information from them or whatever, or in, like, prison systems, you are in trouble you go in yeah, isolation, solitary. right? Yep. Or even with our children, small scale, mm-hmm. you put them in timeout. Well, now that's not trauma, but if you do it properly. But why does that work? Because people need to be with people. And so when we isolate them, for whatever reason, it's traumatic. But then it's also a consequence of trauma because after you've been through trauma, what do you want to do? You want to isolate, you want to hide, you want to avoid. So in a sense, it's kind of like perpetuating this cycle without even realizing it. So definitely it's triggering a lot of those PTSD symptoms to come up. Um, yeah. No, and I think in conjunction with that, so lots of times what we see with people that are struggling with substance use disorders, alcoholism, drug addiction, there's like a secretiveness to those to those mm-hmm. disorders. And so, you know, they, they, they hide it. And so a big thing, I mean, that we work on them in therapy is like, let's get this out in the open. There's this old adage that people say, you're only as sick as your secrets. And so, you know, isolation comes along with that. So it's difficult, you know, because we focus so much on recovery about connecting with other people, talking about what's going on with you, expressing your feelings, getting it out there. And now it's like, hey, you're isolated again, you know, kind of back mm-hmm. when you were in your addiction. So, it kind of, you know, it can, can bring up some of that, um, some of those old thought patterns and stuff like that. So really important for people to stay plugged in virtually um, and, and be around people that they know are, are safe. So, so what are you guys doing here? Because uh, I know you used to have PTSD groups. You had a bunch of groups that would meet in a room and, and talk, smoking cessation, a whole bunch of different stuff. How are you making that work uh, virtually now? 
Sure. So we still have some in some in person services going for sure. So um, we still have walk ins at same day access at all of our locations. We still have our residential unit. It's it's still up and running. It's fully um, fully staffed. We have really safe testing procedures. Everybody's tested before they go in, and then they isolate until the test results come back. Um, transcranial magnetic stimulation is still up and going. So things that we can't do in person, we're still doing, um, or things that we can't do virtually, we're still doing. But we have expanded our virtual care across the board. We've had huge increases in that. Um, you know, I've got some some stats here on that that I can discuss if you guys want to. But we've done a lot of virtual groups. So you know, VVC we had already adopted it thanks to Dr. Farshid, who's our virtual um, care coordinator. He did a great job. He came out here from another VA, but he got us set up really well with VBC. So we hit the ground running and we were able to convert stuff over very quickly. Um, of course, there's been bumps along the way, but for the most part, it's been pretty smooth for us. So we've converted the majority of our groups over to VBC and then we're able to do all kinds of therapy. We've really kind of discovered so many people were like, I don't think we're going to be able to do that virtually. I don't think we're going to be able to do intakes virtually. I don't think we're going to be able to do um, prolonged exposure therapy virtually. But we found out that that we've been able to do that. Yeah, definitely. And I think the veterans really do like the groups. Obviously, there's an element that's that's just not, you're just not able to have the same level of connection, maybe some might think, um, but they still get to see each other. They're hearing each other. They're sharing stories. They're connecting. They're still going through the same therapy process. What we have done in the PTSD program is we've make, made our group sizes smaller. Um, not significantly, but instead of having like 12 in a group, we'll limit it to like maybe a max of eight, just because it's a little bit easier to track everyone and make sure that everyone really gets a chance to be heard because it can be a bit more intimidating in a virtual setting. But we're still doing that and they're really reaping the benefits. Tim, going back to your conversation about the the LVR3, the recovery center, um, do you see more um, people looking to use those services now or do you anticipate that with, you know, isolation kind of comes the you know, alcohol and drug use can probably become a problem. And with, you know, virtual gambling sites out there, mm -hmm. there's probably, you know, no drop off in the abuse of some of these things. Do you anticipate, a, you know, expansion of, of the need for the LVR3? I think, so we've had really good, um, we've had a lot of referrals to the program, um, you know, during the COVID period. And like I said, we've set up a safe process to get them in. It hasn't been a huge increase from where we were at before. But I'll say this, I think people are still very concerned because of COVID um, to, to put themselves in a, in a residential situation um, and be around other people. So I think we'll see even a bigger spike after, you know, things are, whether, you know, the, the rates drop quite a bit or there's a vaccine developed or something like that, because many people will be coming out of what you just talked about right then. And then hopefully at that point, they'll feel safe enough to come in and get the care that they need. So one thing that I was reading a, a recent Psychology Today article uh, talked about how in addition to the, you know, the pandemic that we're facing right now, um, we may be looking at a possible suicide epidemic uh, because mm -hmm. of a combination of factors. Um, you know, with, with veteran suicide being one of the, the you know, secretary's top issues in the VA, um, you know, what kind of, of uh, you know, actions are we taking in you know, preparation to make sure that we are you know, getting ahead of this? Yeah, so I think if you look across, um, I always think that healthcare is local. And so here in Las Vegas, I think if you, and every, all of the providers in Las Vegas are working really hard to provide um, robust mental health care to their patients. But if you look at the VA specifically, 
it's a really, really well-formed system that offers various different types of cares in ways that a lot of places can't do. Um, you know, we've got uh, programs for, obviously, our, our veterans that are being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but we've also got substance use programs. We've got programs for our seriously mentally ill. We have work therapy programs. We have residential programs. We've got an acute inpatient unit. We do things like transcranial magnetic stimulation and alpha stim. And so I think keeping all of those going during the pandemic and doing them as safely as we possibly can, which is virtually for some of them, I think it's really going to help people get through this crisis, help our veterans get through this crisis. The other thing that I think the VA has that is really nice is our suicide prevention program. So we've expanded that program here and veterans can call in, family members of veterans can call in 24-7 to 1-800-273-TALK and they'll be able to immediately talk to somebody that can walk them through that crisis and then connect them with us and then we will get them enrolled in the care that they need. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, it's interesting that you bring up that article. I haven't read it, but I think what it probably is talking about is all these factors are triggers, right? What are the triggers of suicide? Are increased feelings of isolation, increased feelings of hopelessness, increased substance use. So the pandemic has created, you know, the opportunity for all this increase in symptomology. So I can see where there'd be the worry of that happening. I really echo what Tim said is we have such a robust and multidisciplinary, so many different programs, so much access for our veterans. But I see that nationwide as, as definitely being a concern. Um, so I think as mental health providers, we are talking about that. We are aware of it. And I'll definitely read that article, too. You said that um, it, it presents the opportunity to see all of those symptoms. Have you seen an increase in people seeking out mental health uh, services? Because, like, if you get coronavirus, that's how you mess up your lungs. But I don't need to get coronavirus to need you know, some, some sort of help coping and adjusting. So ha have you seen a, kind of a, a rise in folks seeking out services? We've really kind of stayed steady with where we were at before, which is impressive because many services you've seen a big drop off. Um, so we haven't seen a ton of people come out um, in, in large numbers comparatively to where we're at, but we've stayed the same that we were. We're continuing to grow. This VA here is one of the 10th fastest growing VAs, is the 10th fastest growing VA in the country. So um, we, can we continue to see that steady increase in, in veterans coming in the door for um, mental health issues, which is great um, that they're coming in to, to use our services. I think in conjunction with that, when we look at it, it, so it's kind of hard to parse out, is it because of the coronavirus or is it just kind of where, um, you know, kind of the regular flow that we get in here and the, the high need. I think when you, when you look at Nevada and you look at the rates of qualified mental health professionals just in the state, it's not very high. We're low for psychiatry. We're low for clinical social work. We're low for clinical psychology. We're low for mental health APRNs. So the care is not always out there in the community. So we have a higher utilization rate of our VA here. Um, so like I said, it's already been used. Uh, we're already used pretty heavily here, which is great. Um, and we've seen that same thing. We have anecdotally, anecdotally have people come in and say, you know, I'm really struggling with the coronavirus. I'm struggling with being alone. This is scary times. I feel isolated. Uh, and so we have seen, we have seen that. I would agree. I, I don't think we've necessarily seen an increase in numbers because our numbers have always been consistent, a good flow. But what I've seen an increase of, like just even in my individualized caseload, um, is the anxiety has increased. You know, the, the, this is definitely the topic of a lot of sessions, how this is impacting people. You know, they're out of jobs or, you know, their kids are at home and all the things that we're all facing. And so I've seen a bit of a shift in the focus of therapy um, and even some patients who I maybe thought were doing a lot better now have, I don't want to say that they've regressed, but 
now there's a new crisis at hand, so they, they maybe need a bit more attention, or I'm seeing them more frequently than I was before, stuff like that. The, the fact that there hasn't been a rise, to me, I'm, I'm just a layman, I, you know, I'm not an expert by any means, but I, I know like what's going on in my friend group and, and what I see in, in the wider world and social media and everything else that's going on in the world right now. It's a really stressful time. So to me, it's kind of surprising that you don't see that many, you don't see an increase. Mm-hmm. Um, understandably, there's a shift, but to me, it seems like there would be more people seeking out. I mean, rates are high already, but, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, they can go higher. (laughs) We welcome them. Sure. We welcome everybody listening. You know, we definitely um, can always accommodate. We always make space. And, you know, people are worried about having to come in person, educating that we do virtual and there are these different options. So we definitely welcome anyone to come through our And doors. if somebody does want to get help, uh, who, how, how, how do they do it? They, where, where do they go? Where do they start? They can um, call the, you know, our main number here and just let them know that they're interested in mental health, uh, mental health services. We'll get them set up for an intake. Uh, they can walk into any of our locations. Uh, there's lots of different ways that that they can that they can get connected with care. So it's a pretty uh, pretty straightforward process. One other thing, just to kind of double back, wouldn't you say, you know, Dr. Anders, that when we look at providing care with our veterans, you know, we've spent a lot more time kind of doing like crisis work with people. And so lots of times we'll do like evidence-based care with people, which is a protocol and there's different sessions and, and different homework assignments, but it's been harder to do that with people right now, just because they're, you know, they're dealing with all these effects of, of things going on. That's exactly kind of what I was referring to. Um, I totally agree. You know, we'll be, you mentioned, you know, PTSD, we'll be focusing on doing our evidence-based and most of our evidence-based protocols are 12 to 16 sessions. Believe it or not, that is just happens to be this magic number where people really see results and their life gets exponentially better. Now, what has happened with several patients on my personal caseload, and I know it's the same for many of our providers, will be in the middle of a protocol and, you know, other things are coming up and it doesn't seem like the protocol is the focus anymore. So now we're shifting focus, which we're adaptable, we're flexible. We definitely want to do that. And then we can go back to the trauma processing. Right now, I've actually noticed that less people are wanting to process their trauma because they're kind of in another trauma. Right. So it's hard to say, yeah, let me focus on what happened, you know, in the military or what happened when in my childhood or, or whatever, when they're kind of focusing on how what's going to happen with my kids this year at school, my partner just lost their job, X, Y, Z. So we're really focusing on a lot of here and now um, topics, a lot of present moment instead of that trauma processing, which is just as important. It's just not the right time. So when we when we look, you know, there's potentially out there between the economy, schools, election, mm-hmm. like a lot of the, the social justice stuff going on. There's potentially seven or eight different traumas going on at the same time. So how do you how do you deal with that as as people who are trying to help people? I think it's definitely, you know, a case by case basis. It's, it's about prioritizing what's important for the veteran, you know, the patient that we're seeing, talking to them, getting to know them. What's, you know, sometimes you do have a list of here's the seven most distressing things and spending that time in, in each session, each week, finding out what can we do this week? You know, what are we, what can we resolve? Um, and, and I hear you, right? And so sometimes these things that are they're triggering past traumas, and there's no one-size-fits-all. It's just about really getting to know our veterans, spending the time with them, and, and collaborating on what they need. And I think we do a really good job of that. And I think just to add to that, um, and this is even personal, 
at times it's good just to turn off the social media turn off the news like take a break from that stuff because it's overwhelming and it puts people almost in like a fear-based mindset which is going to exacerbate mental health symptoms so We've encouraged our staff to do that because, you know, they've had to practice extra self-care um, during this time because you, you said it perfectly, Josh. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world um, nowadays, which is which is very anxiety for provoking for, for people. So doing some of those very, like, pragmatic self-care measures makes a big difference. And that actually brought up an interesting question I was going to ask you because I, I myself have deleted my personal Facebook since this time. Um, I don't really do much on Instagram or Twitter or anything. So I thought you defriended me. Uh, it's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was hurt. I was it just you. <laughs> so, no, you noticed me glaring. At you. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I just it wasn't anything like a specific instance or anything like that. It was just you. you know, it was kind of being inundated with with negativity and. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't want to become like a, a conduit for that. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I, I think of a lot of veterans who don't have any kind of personal communication that they have in their day-to-day life. For a lot of people, sometimes that social media can become that form of communication. Um, what, you know, how do you recommend for people who, you know, don't have that option to just remove themselves from social media? Like, how can they still filter out some of that negativity. You know, like for Facebook specifically, if there's certain friends or family members or even organizations that you don't want to lose touch with but you need a break with, you can just like block their content for a little while and go back into it. And so, you know, with same with Twitter. I mean, you can unfollow somebody for a while and then follow them again when you're feeling more capable or when you're feeling more comfortable with the situation. So I always encourage people to do that. If there's one person on your friend account that's just really uh, you know, kind of triggering you right now, take a break virtually from them. We have to do that in real life. We sometimes have to take break from, from regular friends. Nicole always tells me she needs distance from me. So, you know, I, that, that happens. That Only happens in doses can I take that's that. Right, that's right. Most but people, I, most people do that, especially women. But I, I agree, you know, I think and one of the biggest focuses of therapy um, for many people is relationships and boundaries. And now that we've stepped into this virtual world, there needs to be a discussion about virtual boundaries. And I think we forget about that. You know, we talk about physical boundaries and sexual boundaries and verbal boundaries and all that when we're talking, but we're not we're not really focused on these virtual boundaries that we need to set. And so I think it's a new topic and I think it's really great to bring up to your therapist and we can talk about that in session. We're gonna take a quick break and uh, come back with Dr. Nicole Anders and Tim Jobin. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. Question, what will you find on all over-the-counter or OTC medicine packages to help you choose the right drug and use it safely? The answer, the drug facts label. This label lists the medicine's active ingredients and purpose, how much to take, and warnings you should know before using it. Remember, even OTC medicines you buy without a prescription can cause side effects you don't want. So follow the information listed on the drug facts label. For more information, visit fda.gov slash drug facts label. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. All across the country, people are coming together to speed up what we can learn about health. The All of Us Research Program is calling on one million people to join us as we try to change the future of health. For your family, for future generations, for all of us. Visit joinallofus.org and find out how you can become one in a million. We are strong, we are resilient, 
and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. And we're back in The Nine Line Podcast with me, your host, John Archiquette, and my co-host, Joshua Gray. Hello. And joining us, we have Dr. Nicole Anders and Mr. Tim Jobin from our mental health department. Um, you know, one thing that being a veteran myself and, you know, three of us here being veterans, you kind of get inundated with the machismo of being in the military. Uh, some of that, you know, you're not hurt, you know, carry on through pain. Um, you know, a lot of that tends to carry over into our hesitance to, to seek help meant for mental health issues. How do you bridge that gap? How do you destigmatize some of the, uh, you know, hesitation? Sure, sure. Nicole, do you want to take this one? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest issues that, not just in the military, but in culture that we're facing, is the stigmas around mental health. I think we've done a really good job in recent years in in breaking those, but I think the military, you're right, it presents this extra layer of machismoism, if you want to call it that, or, you know, the shut up and move forward, it doesn't matter mentality, which in certain situations are really important. But I think, obviously, at the end of the day, male, female, we're all human, which means we all feel, we all have emotions, we all have the same needs. And so I think one of the biggest things is educating about that, right? I, when I sit with veterans, I bring that to the table. I like to be really direct. Um, I think that no issue, we talked about secrets earlier, you know, there's, there should be no secrets, right? Bring everything to the table and really normalize that, especially with men. Sorry, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> but especially with men, I think there's an extra layer, right? So we have the societal layer, we have the military layer, and then we have this male layer, which is all blocking us from getting really in touch with our emotions and feeling like it's okay to express them and, and whatnot. And so I think educating about that, normalizing it. We talked about groups before, and I, I love, personally, I love running group therapy. I love running men's groups. One of my favorite groups that I personally run is a men's sexual trauma group, which, right, add another layer of stigma mm-hmm. there. And I think the biggest thing that I see at the end of session one is just the fact that everyone's sitting in the room together realizes, wow, I'm not the only one in the room. So if we can get that message out in group, in individual, like in media, like how we're doing, that you're not alone, it's so important. That's all people need to hear, and people need to really feel that they're not alone. Um, and then the stigma can slowly drift away. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, you know, when you're experiencing a mental health issue, when you're experiencing a substance use issue, you, you can fall into these like dis, dis periods of despair. Um, but if we look at the mental health population, there was a study done in 2017 by the, I think it was the NIH, but like 46.6 million people just in the United States have mental health issues. People are not alone in this. People are, you know, recovering from these from these various issues together. So I think that's a really big thing. And, you know, when we think of suicide prevention, 
people sometimes think like, oh, it's this organization's job or it's that organization's job. But the only way that we're going to really be able to tackle suicide in this country and really throughout the world is like through a population health approach. So, you know, when, when we tackled smoking, when smoking rates went way down in the United States, it wasn't just, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services job or the CDC jobs. The whole United States took it on. There were billboards. Um, you know, friends were discouraging it and things like that. And a lot of people think, hey, if you talk about a mental health issue, if you talk about suicide, it's going to make it worse. Studies show it's actually the opposite of that. When you talk about it, you normalize it. So, you know, it's so important that if you see somebody struggling, have that conversation with them, even if it's hard. Open that, open that door. And that's when you see people start to get plugged in and feel more comfortable with it. 46 million in a, in a country of 320 million seems like a really big number. Um, is, is that surprising to you? I don't think it is. And I'll tell you why I don't think Or is it, it is. too low? I think it's probably underrepresented because to me, there's no real difference between medical concerns and mental health concerns. If we looked at that number and said, oh, how many people have met a medical concerns? It'd probably be a, a close to 100%. Maybe not that high, but it would be higher than 46.6 million. Um, so I think it's just more about, um, people recognizing that mental health issues are no different than medical issues. If you need help for it, it's the same thing. Go in and get help for it. There's no major disparity between the two. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I would say that it's probably underreported because we only can go off the data of the people that are coming forward and we know how difficult it can be to come forward because of shame or embarrassment or these cultural barriers. So I'm not surprised at all by that number. And that doesn't mean that they have that mental health issue forever. I think that's another piece of the stigma. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, being in the PTSD program, that is one of the biggest myths that I like to debunk about PTSD and other mental health um, disorders, that it's not forever. A lot of people think, oh, PTSD, you're going to have that for 50 years. Are there some people who do have it for 50 years? Yes. Why? Because they never came forward. They never processed through it. I was saying earlier that there's there's therapies that are 12 to 16 sessions and people can heal. Like this is people coming in with very very extreme symptoms and 4 months later really doing the work. Don't get me wrong, those 4 months are going to be tough. A lot's going to come up, but if they commit and do the work in 4 months, people can see a reduction of symptoms where they no longer meet criteria. So this myth that mental health is forever is very untrue. We need to debunk that and realize that we there's so much out there, so much evidence and data that says we can work through it. So, you know, we talked about the, the machismo factor uh, earlier where people are basically saying, I don't need help. Mm. What do you do to combat people that kind of recognize they, they have something that they could use help, but they just say, I don't want it? Yeah, I... You know, that's tough. I think that you, you're just, you, you highlight the benefits of treatment with them and you let them know that you're here. And so you get these periods when you're working with people where there's like a window of opportunity where you can, you can kind of strike and get in there and help them get into recovery. And it's about really patiently waiting for those, uh, waiting for those individuals. I was working with somebody, they had a substance use disorder. It seemed like that was really kind of like driving a lot of stuff going on, but they didn't want to work on it. And it's like, all right, we don't worry about it. We'll just keep it in the back of there. We'll just keep it on the table, put it on the back burner, and we'll, we'll see what happens when it comes up, you know, if it does come up. And as time went on, time went on, it just kept kind of coming up and, and they would bring it up. And then eventually one day, 
unfortunately, you know, kind of a catastrophe happened, um, it, but we were able to get them into residential rehab. They're still sober today. You know, they're still doing well, you know, really, really kind of an amazing thing. So I think that's not only for mental health professionals to do, for families too. You know, if you have somebody that's really suffering, I mean, there's things like interventions and stuff like that, but there's also, you know, kind of that beauty of just taking care of yourself, maintaining your personal boundaries and waiting till that person is really willing to get help and doing your best. Um, you know, sometimes we, we see with people that struggle with substance use issues, the family's trying to be helpful, but they end up enabling. They end up giving more money because they think it's helpful. They end up, um, you know, hiding things for them. They end up shaming them without meaning to. True. So it can go either way. And so it's an important thing just to take care of yourself during those times and be ready for that person when they are ready to go into recovery. Just when we look at the statistics, one in four adults have a mental health diagnosed issue. One in four mental health, one in four adults in the United States. So, you know, if we look around us right now, you know, I mean, so the, one it's of me. us here, <laughs> it's all of us. So, um, but, but, you know, that's something to really think about in regards to destigmatization of mental health issues. Well, you know, talking about having, you know, one in four Americans with, with, you know, a diagnosed mental health issue, and you talked about it before, you know, how many people are going undiagnosed. Um, you know, I, I heard, somebody compare some mental health issues to kind of like stress fractures where, you know, if you're running and you've got, you know, a mild case of shin splints and you continue to run on it and you don't seek, you know, seek help for it and it just compounds, whereas eventually you're, you're possibly looking at some serious issues. I've heard mental health can kind of be the same way where, you know, you may feel like, well, maybe I'm just having a little bit of the blues today and you know another issue comes up and you never talk to anybody about it and these these things eventually do begin to compound you know how do you kind of you know cut that off you know stop you know stop it from progressively getting worse and you know how do you address that right away i mean it kind of goes back to just you know walking through the doors and being ready and open i think therapy uh, mental health you know relationships are a relationship so the kind of bouncing back to that question of you know um what do you do if somebody doesn't want help? You have to wait for them to be ready to want help because they have to do their part too. And what do you do if somebody can't recognize that these things are building up? You have to wait for them to have some type of awareness. Um, and maybe that awareness comes with a catastrophe or, you know, relationships suffer or, you know, things, you know, it will come up eventually. And so hopefully they can just notice that, you know, I have the blues, but now I'm having the blues five days a week and now I'm, you know, not showering as much as I used to. Now I'm not going to, you know, hang out with my friends like the way I used to. Things like that. And and if they can recognize that, and there's help out there. And I think as a society, we've got to be ready to offer the help. So one program that we've really focused on here is called our PCMHI program. It stands for Primary Care Mental Health Integration. So lots of times, you know, you build this relationship with your primary care provider and you feel comfortable. You know, that's a medical appointment. You feel comfortable talking with them. The nice thing about PCMHI is if you're in there, you're talking with your PACT provider, you're talking with your, your primary care provider, and you bring up a mental health a mental health concern or, or you know you're say you're feeling sad we can have a mental health professional see you immediately you know and that is just so important right then they're part of that pack team and some people just need really brief care maybe they need an antidepressant and, you know a lot of mental health issues are, are organic you know there's something that, that's biologically going on with us that we need some some help to work on so it's not really that like 
you know, you can just kind of tough your way through it, you know, it'd be like kind of trying to like tough your way through cancer and stuff like that. You just can't really do that, you know? Um, And so it's important to get that care quickly when you're able to get it. So having those services embedded throughout our society in primary care clinics in other locations where they're comfortable is really, really important. Well, and here at the VA, we do have a number of of options for getting immediate care. We have same day mental health services, um, both here and uh, the the uh, Veterans Recovery Centers also have uh, a number of options for counseling. And at our outpatient clinics, too. And so. our vet centers. And our vet centers. So we have the Veterans Recovery Center. We have all of our all of our locations in the Las Vegas Valley have same-day access. We also have locations in Laughlin and Pahrump. And then um, we have our vet center partners in Henderson and Las Vegas that do, too. What... what um, if I was somebody, and I'm going to liken this to a car, like like none of my wheels are falling off, but I just need a little tune-up. So if people are at home, but they they want to get some help and they want to do some something that doesn't necessarily rise to seeking formal treatment, uh, what can you do just kind of on your own to kind of keep your, your balance in, in this time? You know, I... So if you just need, I mean, part of it, if you if you just need a tune-up and your wheels aren't falling off, if you don't get a tune-up, your wheels will eventually fall off, you know, or the engine will shut down, and that can manifest in people in different ways. But I feel like most people have a plan that works for them where they can stay, you know, psychologically healthy. And so, I mean, for me, you know, it's running, I like to meditate, um, it's spending time with friends and family, things along those lines, things that I enjoy doing that make me um, that make me feel better. And so I think it's about kind of discovering that plan for you because everybody's got one and then keeping that going. It's easy for me to kind of, you know, during especially during COVID because we've been so busy trying to get everything over to virtual care. I lost sight of that for a little while and then kind of reflecting on that being like, oh, I need to get back into some of those patterns and work on that that plan that's very individualized with me. People can figure that out on their own. They can also work on that with a counselor. I agree. And, you know, I think you bring up a good point. Everyone has the things that work for them. There are barriers right now. You know, um, I love yoga. And, you know, yoga studios did just reopen, but I'm pregnant and I'm questioning the safety of going there. And they were closed for a while. Gyms were closed for a while. Some of these outlets were closed for a while. And still some people don't feel safe going to them, even with some of the you know, new procedures. So I think finding ways to still get that benefit at home. There's a lot of apps. You know, I use a a yoga app that I love and I do it in my backyard before it was too hot and now inside. But there's a lot of meditation apps. There's a lot of apps where you can connect with people. Um, You can play Pokemon Go together. You can, um, there's different support group apps. You know, there's different, whatever you like, right? Like if you like guitars, I'm sure there's like some type of a guitar connection group. I don't really know. But I think it's about finding what you like, like Tim said, and then finding ways to still do that, even with the barriers that are present right now with COVID. And that must pose a challenge for you because we live in a city where one of the biggest outlets that's open for business right now is feeds right into a lot of addiction and and things Mm -hmm. like that in the casinos. Like if I wanted to go to, to the movies, I can't. If I wanted to go see a concert, I can't, but I can go gamble. <laughs> you know, but it's yeah. funny. I actually had a patient that I was working with that had some gambling stuff. And when the casinos shut down for a while, his, he like stopped gambling. You know, so we've seen the reverse of that, too. And he hasn't gone back yet since. So, um, you know, we're working around that issue. Uh, so it's interesting. You see both things. But you're right. This city does have... Um, 
you know, easy access to things that can be can be harmful to us. Uh, so it's important to stay on top of that and, and find some of those healthier outlets mm-hmm. that we can find to do this. One app that I want to bring up that the VA created, but it's anybody can use it. It's called the COVID Coach, um, and it's a great, it's a really great app. It kind of gives you it gives you stress uh, reduction techniques. There's other you can find resources of different virtual groups to connect with, um, and then it's got this really nice feature. It's called a mood check, but it's basically like an like an evidence-based questionnaire that kind of tells you where your mood's at today and are you really struggling with depression? Is it just the blues or are you really depressed? You know, do you need some help? Is it just a little bit of garden variety anxiety or are you going through an anxiety disorder? And so it really kind of helps you zero in on that and then gets you plugged into resources. So, I love that app. Yeah. I tell all my patients about it. I've told my friends about it who are not veterans. I said, this is a cool app. VA created it, but it's for everyone. Um, so. so it's called COVID Coach. COVID Coach, yeah. And it's just on the App Store or yeah, Google Play or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. You just type in COVID Coach. Free. Um, awesome. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, yeah. Between that and you know the same day services that that we offer for mental health, uh, it sounds like veterans have a lot of options out there. And the crisis line. And the crisis, absolutely. One eight hundred two seven three talk. That's another. Um, that's another great. The other thing that, and I'll say this too, you know, lots of times. Especially when you're in the military, you kind of get care. You don't kind of you get care together as a family. Everybody goes to the military base. You know, when you come to the VA, it's really focused on the veteran. Um, so one thing that we've done in mental health, really, people that have a lot of success for mental health disorders get care together as a family. So they'll come in, and their family may come in too. So in our residential, we have some family groups over there. But we also, um, over the past year and a half, we opened up a family clinic here, and so veterans can come in and get counseling with their spouse with their girlfriend, um, with their boyfriend, with their partner, even with some of their other family members, you know, with their children if they're having struggles. Parents. Parents, exactly, exactly. Um, so that's another nice resource, and we're doing that virtually right now too. So Great. Yeah. Well, I want to thank both of you for, uh, for joining us today. This has been a, a really awesome conversation. Um, we look forward to uh, having you guys back on again because this is, you know, as – it's ongoing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not something that's going to go away. So definitely. we're uh, we're going to keep up to date with that, and you know, I appreciate having you guys on. No uh, problem. We are honored to be on. Yes, thank you. Well, we will uh, take a two week break, and we'll, we'll be back. Uh, yeah. We'll have some more stuff to talk about, probably coronavirus related, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. I don't think it's just going away. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. You've been listening to the Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Las Vegas VA. Thanks for listening.